The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. for you today from John's Gospel, chapter 1. We take a great leap forward as we've spent, I guess, five weeks covering through verse 18. We're now looking today at John 1, 19, and I'll read through verse 34. I want you to notice how the prologue, that first 18 verse section, has looked at what we often call the cosmic nature of Christ, His preexistence, His glory at the Father's side as a revealer of God the Father, and so on, and the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. But now we move more into the scene of Jesus' actual earthly ministry, where the spokesman for much of what I'm going to read is John the Baptist. He's just called John, so don't be confused. It's not the author John, it's John the Baptist who we're speaking about here in most of this section. John chapter 1, starting at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, No. And so they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. The grass fades and the flower withers, but the word of our God abides forever. A fictional town called Grover's Corners, 
New Hampshire is the setting for a great American play of the 20th century. Many of you may already recognize that I'm talking about Thornton Wilder's Pulitzer Prize-winning drama called Our Town, a very long-running, long-enduring play. I've read something about it the other day that said somewhere in America in any given week, Our Town is being staged in a high school, a community theater, a city theater group. It's a long-enduring play. I had a bit part in it as a 16-year-old, and I've never forgotten the great morality that it represents as this play is about how people of several households in a very plain, ordinary New England village go about their daily lives in their kitchens and their businesses and their schools and explore what it means to be human beings. And really, the theme of the play is the precious gift that life is and the way in which people really don't appreciate it as they're experiencing it. That only after the fact, after death, do they understand what a precious thing life is. I was one of the people that stood up in the cemetery to talk about the people on earth who don't appreciate their lives. So I was once dead but spoke. And a great play with a great message. The dramatic innovation that made Our Town a unique play was the character of the stage manager. Thornton Wilder did something unique that I don't know if anybody had exactly done this before. The stage manager walks about during the show. He's sort of a folksy, small-town guy with his pipe and a bit of a philosopher. And he walks at the front of the stage and explains to you what's happening on the stage. He keeps coming in and saying, well, now you're going to see this, and here's how this relates to that. And he kind of introduces the show as it goes along. That was a very novel device. Well, you might think I'm a little strange to think this way, but when I was reading and studying our text here about John the Baptist, I couldn't help but think of John the Baptist as that stage manager stepping into the drama of the gospel to begin explaining to us things that we're going to see and going to discover to be true about Jesus Christ here as his ministry is more or less launched. This gospel, you notice, doesn't begin with a birth narrative. It doesn't tell us about Mary and Joseph at Bethlehem. It doesn't have a genealogy of Jesus. It doesn't tell about flight to Egypt or any of that. It comes right into the adult ministry of Christ, unique from the other gospels. And guided by the Spirit of God, John, the author, records testimony from another John, John the Baptist, to warn us about or introduce to us some important things to look for. He calls himself God's voice. God's voice introducing Jesus Christ to us. Of the several things, I have two, two main points and a, and a short third point today. But first of all, John the Baptist shows us, I think, by his example, every Christian disciple's posture of proper humility before Christ the Lord. The posture of humility before Christ. Now, here's a man who was drawing great crowds. His preaching got attention. People flocked to him, whether it was the manner of his preaching or the novelty of the fact that he asked for this symbolic act of 
water baptism to represent cleansing from sin and turning your heart toward God, he was getting attention. And you see here how a squad of people were sent out from the Jerusalem temple. The Pharisees said, hey, go out there and tell us what that guy's doing. Does he think he's Christ? In other words, does he think he's the Messiah? Does he think perhaps he's Elijah from the prediction of Malachi that Elijah would come before the Christ? Does he think he's the prophet? If you don't recognize that, that refers to Deuteronomy 18 when Moses said one day, a prophet like me is going to arise in Israel. How is he identifying himself? Bring us a report. Well, they go out, they ask these questions, and John the Baptist ticks off the list. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet Moses predicted. Now, Interestingly, just as a sidebar note, you may realize that Jesus in Matthew said, by the way, John did figuratively and spiritually fulfill the prophecy about Elijah. He wasn't Elijah reincarnate in a literal sense, but he fulfilled that idea of the forerunner for Christ. So it's interesting to see that he fulfilled it, but apparently wasn't even conscious himself of fulfilling it. Well, here we have a man in a very prominent role, a man who had many strong, positive qualities, a leader, someone who attracted notice, somebody who who could have very well beat his own drum and made a big following. In fact, he did have a following of people who were his loyal disciples. You know, I've been thinking, and I guess it's uh, front page. I don't see the Sunday paper until afternoon on Sunday, but I did glance at the headline, and you can't help but see the front page, big news, head football coach for Penn State University, someone coming to lead with much fanfare and with apparent high qualifications. been interested to follow this like you with uh, asking the question. You know, we, we make so much of this. Sorry, Penn State people, if you think I'm not being loyal. I like Penn State. But I would tell you that we get these things a little out of proportion. Four and a quarter million dollars a year to teach young men to chase a football up and down the field? I think we've got something out of proportion. And you know, I really wouldn't want to be this man, Mr. Franklin, coming with all of his resume and his qualifications. He's won bowls. He's, he's done. We're hearing all the great things. I tremble for him. He's been built up so much he can't help but, in some regards, fail, right? Unless he has undefeated seasons five years in a row and wins a bowl every one of them. Some of you are going to run him down, criticize him, tell your friends what's wrong with him. He can't win. Isn't it interesting to think how easy it is for us to get carried away to let ourselves perhaps be put on a pedestal, even if it's just a a pedestal within your own family, let alone, uh, you know, great visibility of a, a national university, and have everybody say, look how great that person is. And then you try to live up to that. Maybe you even become your own press agent, putting out your publicity and massaging that publicity, and before you know it, going on an ego trip. Well, here was John the Baptist who could have indulged that so readily. You know, he could have made a little golden crown for himself and worn it around and say, look at me. 
Do you all realize how important I am? God has selected me. God has called me to be the forerunner of his Messiah. And instead, what does John do? All the way through. Repeatedly, he lowers himself in the eyes of others, disclaiming all the elevation and all the grandeur they want to lay at his feet. Notice verse 27 where he says, One stands among you the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. We know that what the servants did in in an upper-class household in that first century time, if you were wealthy enough to have several servants, there was a job that the lowest servant would do. When guests came, their feet all dusty and sweaty, this servant would go and take off their sandals, bathe their feet, give them that comfort and refreshment as they came into the home. But the host didn't do that. In fact, the first servant didn't do that, and the first servant's assistant didn't do that. The third assistant to the second servant did that. The lowest one did that lowly job. And here's John the Baptist saying, it would be an honor that is above me to take off the sandal and wash the dusty foot of the one who God has called me to be a forerunner and a voice announcing the coming of Christ. Wow. This is John who later on in chapter 3, verse 30, is going to say of Jesus Christ, he must increase. I must decrease. Just a few months ago, I was with a a seniors group from our church here at Ocean City uh, on a recharge, we call it, not retreat, we recharge. And uh, I was the speaker there, and I chose to speak with them on the subject of Christian humility for three or four sessions. It was interesting as I explored this because I've been more and more convinced that while we talk about the fruit of the Spirit and we can list what those things are in Galatians and other uh, New Testament books, what is it that when we reflect in our lives Christ-likeness, Christ's presence at work in us, I'm I'm convinced that several of the fruit of the Spirit combine together in this one thing we call humility. You know, there can be a fake humility in which somebody, uh, I think we call this person passive-aggressive, when he's really saying, well, look how low I am, look how humble I am, and he's working very hard to tell you how humble he is. You're not humble when you're telling people how humble you are. And when you have a a program going on to sell the fact that you're humble. Humility is either genuine or it isn't. And authentic Christian humility in following Christ is a thing to be prized. John the Baptist stands here, I think, as a great example. Someone who could have easily climbed on that pedestal and stayed there. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't let people do that. In fact, later on, his own disciples came and and said in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, do you know what that upstart Jesus is doing? He's getting all your disciples. John basically said, good, you go to him too, because he's the important one. I'm not. There's a story told out of the world of music that I came across. I think I read this years ago, but I just encountered it recently. I don't know how many of you, older ones of you who know music, will know the name of Arturo Toscanini, great Italian conductor who had a career 
in America. He conducted the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, among others, for a while. And I think it was with the New York Philharmonic where once Tuscanini, who was acclaimed at the top of his, uh, his uh, craft as a conductor, uh, led Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Now, if you have any knowledge of Beethoven, you know, first of all, Beethoven's pretty dramatic music to begin with. And the Ninth Symphony, as I would remember it, is the dramatic piece of all of Beethoven. Well, Tuscanini led the orchestra in this performance of the Ninth Symphony, and it was fantastic. The audience responded. They just shot out of their seats to their feet, and they shouted, Bravo, bravo! And they cheered and cheered and applauded for a long time, as if to say, we've never heard anything like this. But the story says that when the acclaim and praise died down finally, and the audience sat down and was quiet, Tuscanini could be heard looking at his orchestra members, and he was heard to say to them, the musicians this is, ladies and gentlemen, learn tonight that you are nothing. Beethoven is everything. Well, can we translate that into Christian experience and say to ourselves that we need to learn over and over again in our lives when God brings anything praiseworthy out of us as he did through John the Baptist? You are nothing. Christ is all in all. That's the greatness of Christian humility. It constantly is pointing to Jesus Christ and away from self. Secondly, in our text, I'd have you look at verses 29 to 31, and there's another vital point here. It's really the heart of the thing. In fact, I think verse 29 is the most important verse, if I can say that, of this passage. I believe we're being told here by John the Baptist that the master purpose of Jesus Christ The master reason for his being on earth was to be God's sacrificial lamb removing sin from millions of people. We're told that Jesus was present amid these crowds. I don't know how many days or how many times, but at least for a while, Jesus was among those. In fact, of course, he was also baptized by John. And John admits here twice that he didn't even know for sure who this Messiah was that he was announcing. He couldn't have said it's him or him or him, but he says, the Lord showed me, and the way the Lord showed him was within the baptism of Christ when the dove came upon Christ. And we'll come to that in a minute. But once he did recognize him, he said about him this epic sentence, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, maybe you think, lamb, what do I associate a lamb with? Well, lambs are nice and gentle. They're, they're, uh, you know, not ferocious animals. They they really aren't going to butt you or knock you down or or bite very often. I did once meet a man who who, who knew I was a pastor, and he he looked very thoughtful when I told him I was a pastor. And then he looked at me and he said, well, don't those sheep bite sometimes? (laughs) He was talking about you. (laughs) But... uh, I said, no, haven't been bitten too much lately. But, uh, you know, sheep are gentle. They're meek. They're mild animals. But that's not the meaning of this passage. The association that would be made with a lamb 
from all the Old Testament background that these Jewish people would have had was the idea of a lamb as the animal of sacrifice offered up through its death to atone for sin. You could recall Genesis 22 when Abraham was about to actually offer and sacrifice his own son because he believed God was calling him, and God was calling him to do that. And as he was about to kill him, remember taking Isaac out there with the wood and everything, and Isaac said, where's the lamb, father? And Abraham said, God will provide the lamb, my son. And God did provide the lamb. He did. And Isaac, of course, did not have to be sacrificed. Or you remember the Passover lamb of Exodus that was repeatedly used in the exercise of the Passover from that first night in Egypt when the angel of death spared those who had the sign of blood on their doorposts. Or you remember from the Old Testament also, Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it says the Messiah who would come would be a lamb led to the slaughter. Or if you wanted to complete the loop biblically, you could go ahead of John all the way over to 1 Peter at the end of the New Testament, where 1 Peter 1.19 says of our salvation, it is based on the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or without spot. There's a continuous thread of meaning here through the Bible. The lamb of God. You wonder if John himself fully understood what he was saying. You know, we have examples in Scripture where people spoke prophetically and they didn't perhaps themselves understand the full implications of what they were saying, but God was speaking through them about something greater than they could comprehend. Did John fully see in his mind the cross of Jesus and everything that it involved when he said, Behold the Lamb of God? I can't tell you for sure. But we know that what God was doing here was offering history's perfect lamb. Jesus Christ qualified, pure from any defect, qualified as no other was to be not a one-time, this-week, today sacrifice, but a once-for-all-time sacrifice for the sin of men. Notice that. It doesn't say for sins, We all commit sins and we think about, oh, I got a flat tire and I got mad and kicked the tire or I spoke cruelly to my wife or I did this or that or I I told a little white lie or something and we, we talk about sins. Notice it doesn't say he died for sins. It says he died for the sin of the world. If you children study mythology in school at all, you know there's a mythological, not a real character called Atlas. You might remember Atlas was the guy who supposedly carried the whole world on his back. Well, John is saying here in a sense, Jesus is the one who came and carried the entire massive burden of human sin, the very root cause of what's wrong between ourselves and God, as if it was this huge burden carried on his back. What does it say he did with it? He took it away. He took it out of our sight where it no longer condemns us. Wonderful to hear that. He took it away. For whom did he take it away? Why, it says he took it away for the whole world. Now, there's two ways we could look at that. We could say, well, that means 
let's see, the whole world, that includes every single person ever born. So it must be that Jesus took sin away and every single person ever born without doing anything else about it has had their sin taken away. Well, we know it doesn't mean that because that would contradict too much of the rest of the Bible and the gospel. If people just without nothing done for them or by them had their sin taken away and and didn't have to trust Christ, where's the gospel? The gospel says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved. And so we say certainly this is telling us that it was offered for the whole world, meaning any person from any ethnic background, any language group, any period in in time, whether you're from English background or Scottish background or Spanish background or Burmese or Nepali background, wherever you're from in the whole world, what Jesus did was for you. But it certainly doesn't negate the fact that we must believe, we must put our trust in this Christ for that to be applied to us. The theologian makes the distinction and says the death of Christ is sufficient for the whole world. It's great enough, it's deep enough, it's wide enough for the whole world. But it's efficient, it actually applies to those who believe in Jesus Christ. So Christ wasn't a helpless lamb led to die against his will or something. He was a victor. His his blood not only was shed, but he conquered death. He rose again. And we can come in thinking about him as the Lamb of God all the way to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And hear that declaration there. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, for by your blood you ransomed people for God. Two great points that John the Baptist, the stage manager, has introduced here then. What humility looks like for a Christian before Christ who is preeminent. And what Christ came to do in this world. Be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, there's a third thing, and I'm only going to glance off it because it's so big all by itself that I just don't have time to go into it here today. But in 1 John 1, we see in verses 32 and 33 another thing suggested. And that is that the power of the Holy Spirit is uniquely active in the ministry of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, I saw the Spirit descend on him and remain on him. Some of us have been in a class here in the 930 hour on Sundays that, honestly, I have found to be very beneficial. And I think the others who've been there would agree. We've been watching DVD Uh, broadcasts of Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, an outstanding Bible teacher, teach about the identity of the Holy Spirit. And it's really been inspirational to see the last few weeks how he helps us understand the Spirit by showing how the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ were companions. Christ having the Spirit present in him from his conception and his birth and his ministry right on through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. The Spirit of God was on him in a full and remarkable way. John 3.34 says God gave his Spirit without limit to Jesus. He was the only one of whom that was ever said. He overflowed with the Holy Spirit. And so John the Baptist said, since the Spirit came upon him and filled him and gave him power, 
He is going to baptize others with the Holy Spirit. Now, we could spend a long time unpacking that phrase. But for right now, I'm just going to say suffice it to understand that that means the giving of the Spirit, which gives us a new birth, which opens our hearts to faith, what we call regeneration. We are either reborn of the Spirit, we're going to learn in John 3, or we're not any part of God. Nicodemus was told, a great scholar, couldn't get it. How do I get born again? Does a man enter into his mother's womb again? Nicodemus, either the Holy Spirit gives you new life, or you don't belong to God at all. So we see here the power of the Spirit uniquely active in Christ, not only Him possessing it, but Him bestowing it on those who believe. In summary, let me say this. Let me just zero in a minute on John the Baptist's clear example of Christian humility. If, as I said last week, Christ is preeminent in everything in our lives, how do we respond to that? How do you respond to a person with whom you're in relationship who is high and exalted and so exalted above you that you're not even in his sphere at all? Well, you set self aside. You set pride aside. You make yourself, hopefully, a servant to that person. You don't emphasize your own accomplishments or your own publicity. And you turn as much as you consciously can away from the self-centeredness that comes so naturally to us. We are not our saviors. Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And, you know, by being related to Him in a humble way, a, a way that sets self to one side, it tells us, I'm not Christ, He is But, wonder of wonders, I'm not just a piece of human wreckage either. I'm a son or daughter of God, remade by Jesus Christ, invested with his own dignity, his own power at work in my life. And while I don't have inherent value that I can boast about, I do have value of God being at work in me and making me a new creation. Verse 26 of our text here says that Jesus was in the midst of this crowd, and it says some did not know him. The challenge goes, do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ and what he's prepared to do for you, what he did for you in history on his cross and in his resurrection, and what he wants to do for you in giving his Holy Spirit to you to give you a whole new life? And if you know that, will you, from a position of your own lowliness and brokenness and humility, look to one whose shoe you are not worthy to touch and say, Lord, I believe. I trust you. I look to you as the Christ of God. I thank you for what you did for me. And I believe you are remaking me and bringing me to that state one day when I see you in heaven and I will be like you when I see you face to face. We should pray for a God-centered humility, even brokenness, so that we could hear the benediction spoken in Revelation 5.12 in these words. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power 
and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then when that benediction stops, Revelation 5 immediately tells you what happens to this great scene in heaven that's drawn there. It says, every creature in heaven and on earth fell down and worshipped. Worthy is the Lamb. Our Father, we want to be consumed with Christ. And we are all too easily consumed by ourselves. Preoccupied by ourselves, waiting on ourselves, boasting about ourselves, complaining about what someone's not doing for me. We think of the old hymn that says, Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord. Oh, to be lost in Thee. Oh, that it might be no more I, but Christ who lives in me. Father, we confess we're often a long ways away from that. And yet we thank You for Jesus whose cross is our salvation. We thank You for Your Spirit who is in us. We pray, O God, that You humble us that we might better and better learn to praise You through Him. Amen.